This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to get to work where we left off last week. Revelation, as you know, is a very complicated book, and it does take a lot of study, a lot of paying attention, and uh, I'm noticing that the further we go and get into it, the more complicated it becomes. And when I make a few notations and and write some thoughts down and different things, I I take all of that into consideration um, because there is just so much that you can take in. I mean, even if you had a notepad and and you were, or even if you had a recorder and you were listening to it, taping the message, and by the way, you can go back and, and watch it again if you desire. Thank you for sharing your, your word. So many people have uh, shared with me about uh, how much they appreciated Sunday's message. And uh, you can go back and hear it again. But it, no matter what what means that you use to... Go back and reflect, especially if you're taking notes. I I recognize the fact that you could almost write down what I'm saying verbatim and you could go back tomorrow, next Tuesday, whatever the day is, and reread what we talk about tonight. And I recognize the difficulty that it would be if you're not saturating yourself in this kind of a study where it would be very easy for you to get lost, uh, even in the repetition of it. And, and I take all of that into consideration. The other thing is this. In, in this particular study, and I have done this before many years ago, but in this particular study, um, and, and the more seasoned I become in my study or my preaching and my teaching, um, the more resources that I have and the, and the more uh, the more avenues that I have to to put a sermon or a teaching together as opposed to the early days of my ministry, uh, what I'm finding to be existing now is that there are many, many great Bible teachers on Bible prophecy. There, there are some kooks out there, and I, I recognize that. Um, but there are some very good ones out there. And what I am discovering at this late age is that even some of the, the good ones, I mean straight as a string type of preaching ministries, not all of them agree on various specifics of how prophecy is interpreted or or intertwined. And so in my own study, I find myself hearing a lot of great things, reading the truth myself, putting it all together, and finding myself sometimes in a position where I don't always line up with a certain scholar or theologian and Certainly they would not with me. So as I have said in the beginning of all of this, 
acknowledging that Scripture is not up for private interpretation, but it does make a significant difference in how you study and where that study leads you and trying my ever best to keep it in the context that it was written. When we get to scriptures that we're, we're now diving into, there, there are a lot of symbols and signs. There are symbolic things and literal things, and we have to, the best we can possibly be, know the difference of the two. Revelation in itself is a far-out book, we think, because the things that are written blows our mind. It sounds like things that have emerged from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, especially the closer we get to the end. But it's all true. It's all inspired. It will all happen. And we just have to pray that the Lord will help us to stay focused in this. I'm going to pick up with verse number 16 tonight in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 16. Now, keep in mind that where we are at this particular point, because there are seven churches in Asia Minor, seven literal churches uh, that were in seven literal cities, and John uh, is is disclosing that, uh, and the Lord is talking, teaching him. He's writing, and but we cannot lose focus that what John is writing about uh, was representation of seven literal churches. Now, the church that we're in uh, conversation with tonight is the church of Pergamos. And so that's where we pick up the story where we left off last Wednesday night in Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to read for you verse number 16, and then we'll start getting into some explanation. I do want to reiterate, and I do this often, that if you have a red-letter edition of a Bible, uh, that you keep in mind that all red letters here in the New Testament uh, is the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking. And so he is speaking here in verse number 16. And so we read as he says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this, I will come unto thee quickly. We do know, and I've already said that the Lord is going to come in a twinkling of an eye. Many, many years ago, in my early days of study in Bible prophecy, I tried my best to find out what that meant, a twinkling of an eye. The best that I could do a study on that is that it was calculated to be a twentieth of a second. And in my Bible prophecy teachings in January, we discuss a lot of things about the rapture that is going to take place in this twinkling of an eye that is computed as a twentieth of a second. Unfathomable. We cannot comprehend it because we think in this realm of a finite mind, but we have to understand that God is infinite. That's something that we're not, and we cannot express or explain things that only he knows and that only he can. 
But what this is talking about, I will come unto thee quickly, that's not talking about this twinkling of an eye thing that we know to be computed in time as the rapture. Come unto thee quickly, that's talking about uh, people that are not prepared. That they are preoccupied, they're doing other things than what we should be doing in the faith and will be taken by surprise. So this is, this is the thought that I want to get into at the beginning of the scripture tonight. Uh, and then we'll see what the Lord will lead us. All right. So the church of Pergamos. Um, there are three things that particularly, uh, marked or dominated the heresy of things that were going on in Pergamos. And Sunday morning, I, I mentioned briefly, uh, well-known, established pastors and preachers who are now peddling heresy and went as far as to call a few names. But th this, is a, this is a very strenuous thing uh, that was going on back then. And heresy is something that is... is crept back into uh, the local church, the local New Testament church today. And But back here at this point, there were three things, three specific things that identified the heresies that were being taught here in Pergamos. One was idolatry. And we talked about last Wednesday night <clears throat> how there were four Four temples erected to false gods. It was, it was a tremendous, and I don't use that word as, uh, a word of, of, uh, intrigueness, but it was, it was so horrendous and, and widely accepted that many abominations were taking place and people were embracing it, accepting it. Just like we find ourselves today embracing abominations of all sort. And as the scripture says, as it was in the day of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man shall come. Well, what went on? And, ev and the word says every imaginable thing that was going on in the heart of evilness in Noah's day. The Bible says that when the Lord returns, he will find the earth in that same position, that same shape. And we are witnessing it today. And And I'm surprised. And to see, I don't know how it is that so many people can gravitate to abominations. I, I, I don't get it. It's like the world has gone to a carnival. And people are in parades just throwing out candy sticks to the world. And... The thing that shakes me to the core of my spirit is that professing Christians are getting wrapped up in it as well. Now, I, I don't, I don't understand how that happens. It does, and it, it is going on. But here, there were three, three particular things that marked the heresies that were going on in the Church of Pergamos. One was idolatry. The another was immorality. And another was infidelity. All of those three marked the symbols 
of the heresies that were going on in this particular church. Now, the part of verse number 16, Jesus is saying, repent. He said, you've got an opportunity to pull out of this, repent. He said, if you don't, he said, I'm going to come quickly. I'm going to take you by surprise. He said, I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we do know that that's how he defeats the Antichrist. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, he defeats the Antichrist with the spoken word, not with guns and missiles and tanks and armies of the world. But the, the Bible says he will defeat the Antichrist with his spoken word. Just like he said, let there be light in the very beginning. Think about the spoken word of God that brought into existence and everything that followed after that. It's the same word, his spoken word, uh, that will uh, bring the calamities upon the earth. Now, this also is talking about an overcomer. The overcomer in this particular church, the one that was steadfast, the one that was faithful, they disciplined themselves to refrain from these three things, specific things that I just mentioned. And uh, the word says this, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, he gives the, he, he continues on, the Lord continues on with the same uh, admonition in verse number 17. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit... We'll find that statement over and over again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, there were seven particular uh, works where this is pertaining to in Asia Minor. And he says, to him that overcometh, will I give to eat the hidden manna and will give him a white stone... And in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, that's that seems to be like, I have no idea, preacher, what that's talking about, and I get it. And so, I, I take a little bit of time with this. The overcomer now, and verse 17 is talking about this is the person that refrained from these specific marks of, of being a heretic and stayed away from those. Uh, they weren't perfect people, but they refrained from those dominating uh, aspects of sin. Now, there's something, there's a spiritual meaning here in verse number 17, a couple of things here that we want to shine a little light on. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now, most of us in here know that manna was an angelic type of food for the children of Israel in the wilderness. It came down from heaven. It was a miraculous provision that God had established for them. Now, when you read the story of the children of Israel traveling through the wilderness and God was giving them manna from above, it was falling out of heaven. Eventually, you know how the story goes, the children of Israel started murmuring and complaining about the manna. They, they were 
slowly but surely despising it. And they became zealous in their murmuring about it. But in my study, and I'm not sure how much of this was revealed to them, or I should say how much of it they absorbed, but manna not only met a physical need for nourishment, but the manna that came down from heaven, this angelic food that God was providing in an excessive way, also had the ability to provide throughout their body not only nutrition, but it provided an element in their feet. The best way that I can describe it to you is that it would give them a protective covering on their feet because they were walking through, keep in mind, hot desert sands. I don't know how many of you have ever had the unpleasantry of walking out on a hot beach barefoot, but you know how instantly it can cause you a lot of pain. And you can do a lot of hop, skipping, and jumping and reaching for those flip-flops that were under the umbrella and you're way over here and you're doing, you're doing the dance. And you, you know what I'm talking about. But thinking about traveling hundreds and thousands of people on hot desert sands, God gave them this manna that would not only physically meet the nourishment, nutrition deficits that they had, it would fill them, it would satisfy them, but it would also give them that protective coating on their feet that would help them to almost develop leather-type bottoms on their feet to make the journey. So God, God was doing incredible things, miraculously, and yet the while... They were complaining and fussing about it, but it was a miraculous provision uh, out of heaven. Uh, the manna thing here, uh, because uh, manna was a was a huge element. There were three, if you recall, concerning the Ark of the Covenant. There were three things that was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in itself is another incredible, wonderful story. And uh, there's much study in that. Maybe someday we'll talk on the tabernacle and go through all the various aspects. We'll be in this, I think, till Jesus comes. But uh, providing that we're still here when it's all over with, maybe we'll talk about the tabernacle. I don't know. But inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. There was a pot of manna. It was the Ten Commandments, and it was Aaron's staff, his budding rod. Those three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant. So manna had a very uh, specific role in the lives of the children of Israel, not only during the time of their wilderness travel, but also in in memory and, and sacredness. So it was it was something that meant something to God, and he wanted it to mean a lot to the people. But now, the Lord Jesus is using the phrase hidden manna. John's recording it. He's writing it. And 
we have this phrase, hidden manna. This is one of those moments where, when John is writing, this is figurative. This is symbolic. And it, it was it was to express in a symbolic way spiritual insight, spiritual discernment. That's what this hidden manna was in reference to. It was not talking about the angelic food that was fallen out of the sky, fallen from heaven. It, it, for us or for anybody to imply that would be taking the word seriously out of context. This word, this phrase, hidden manna, Jesus was in reference to, he says this, to him that overcometh, and he's talking about refraining from these aspects of heresy in the church. He said, those who overcome this, he said, I am going to give spiritual insight. I'm going to let them eat of hidden manna. And that's talking about spiritual insight. But then he says another thing here that's a little unusual. He says, and we'll give him a white stone. Now, again, I realize this takes a lot of thought and a lot of study, a lot of preparation on my end to bring it your way. And that through the world, unbelievable abominations were setting in, creeping in to the church. And that through the world, purifying to indulge, uh, well, let me put it this way, for folks to accept what was happening in churches and embrace it freely without reservation, just accepting it as, as what it was, anything and everything was okay. And it started to lead into the church and to overseers in the church and it just became a wretched thing. And the Lord Jesus was saying this in this teaching. He is saying that for those who had overcome, I'm going to give spiritual insight. That though the world was, was doing incredible, heinous things to come against the church, he is saying this, that there was a serious sinful banquet. That's a better way to put this. A serious sinful banquet that was going on where people were just partaking of everything and every, every aspect of ungodliness. And they were satisfying themselves on this. They had developed a carnal, a wicked appetite. That's probably the best way I can explain it to you tonight. And so Jesus is saying that that's the preference of the world. That's the preference of those who has allowed all of these things to creep into the church and just to have a carnal appetite and just to take in and be satisfied and pleased with everything that comes down the highway. But he says this, now the saint of God, even though the world would prefer a carnal appetite, he is saying that the saint of God would prefer to be alone with the Lord 
Because verse number 17 is a spiritual aspect, not physical. He is saying that the, that the true saint of God would prefer, which much rather prefer to be alone with the Lord and eating spiritual food. Now, God understands and we understand in the realms of logic, being Christians, we, we, don't, we don't walk around in the costumes of monks and priests, and we're not, we're not holding candles walking through the hallways, and we're not, we're not doing all these chants. And what I'm saying is, we're not living in, in this world of unrealistic day-to-day lives. We all have jobs. We all have responsibilities. We have a life. We have a personal life. We have a spiritual life. We have fellowship with one another. Our lives are so involved with different things. But there are times and aspects in our life that are devoted strictly, whether it be for daily devotional, whether it be for reading scriptures and meditating on the Word, reading through the Bible, praying, having our prayer time, using the prayer guide, uh, those kind of things where we're building up ourselves in, in, the, in the Word, refreshing ourselves. I think most of us know how to get alone with God. We know how to enhance that spiritual relationship. And so what the Lord was saying here is that there were a lot of people who had developed a carnal appetite and was satisfied with all of that sin, the apostasy, the heresy that was coming in the church. But he said to the overcomer, he said, I'm going to give insight. And those that are able to pull out of those heresies, he said, and develop this this depth of having sweet communion with the Lord, he said, I'm going to give them the spiritual food that they need and not the pleasures of the world. And so the overcomer, they they kept themselves from the loose living of the cultic ways that had crept uh, into the church. And so when, when Jesus says this, this is unusual, and I will give him a white stone. Okay, Jesus is referenced in the scriptures as many things. And by the way, you hear, if you read my newsletter today, I don't know how many, if you hadn't had a chance to read it, let me encourage you to read it. Because uh, as I was mentioning today, what you're going to be hearing a lot about soon is a one-world Bible. And the reason why you're going to be hearing a lot about a one-world Bible is because they're going to take the word Jesus out of it. They're going to make a one-world Bible to fit in this kumbaya type of mentality. And by the way, this trans agenda is leading the, the, the march. But they're going to establish a one-world Bible. They have to have it. There's going to be a one-world church, a one-world government. And if you're going to have a one-world church, you've got to have a one-world Bible. One Bible fits all, satisfies all. A Bible that's not seen to be confrontational. A Bible that is perceived to be, oh yeah, 
Uh, this is this is love. This is peace. This is where we need to meditate. All of this stuff, where where it it suits the Muslim, it suits the Buddhist, it suits the atheist, it suits the Christian. What whatever you are, here is the Bible, and they're going to be taking out the Word of God, distorting the Word of God. But it's going to be the Bible that the Antichrist uses in the One World Church. I mentioned all of that in short today in my newsletter. And so this one world Bible is going to be all-inclusive, non-offensive, and it's going to be eliminating Jesus, the cross, the blood, the resurrection, scriptures like I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. All of these verses that are the word of God, that's, that's the goal. Jesus in the word not only said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but in certain places he said, I am the bread of life. There are seven I am's that Jesus spoke. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. Those types of things. We know Jesus to be the stone hewed out of the mountain. Uh, there, there are a lot of types that represent the Lord Jesus. The Lion of Judah and so forth. So this white stone is one of the many references of Jesus himself. That's what it's, it represents purity. Now, in those days, the way that they did things by court of law, if someone was guilty, uh, they were given a black stone. If somebody was innocent, they would give them a white stone. That meant acquittal. And the white stone was a symbol of purity. So when you read this scripture here, this white stone is in reference to Jesus. And... Jesus was saying, I am the evidence of the victory that you have won in overcoming, over-defying all of the heresy that had crept into the church. And Jesus said, if you do that, now I'm going to give you me. And we'll give the overcomer also in this verse a new name. But I will say this in my study, and this is where a lot of people differ. Uh, and so I'm just going to make, make the statement and move on to verse number 18. I think this, this new name thing, because it's clear to me here, the word saying, a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. I personally think, and you may disagree, and that's fine, because a lot of great scholars do, and a lot of some agree. So we just have to call it like I see it uh, tonight. And I believe that this is representation of another type of reward that is going to be given out at the judgment seat for believers. If it's anything else, I don't know. Now move on. We're out of time. My goodness. 
Let me give you verse number 18. I don't have time to fully develop it, but let's, let's give it our best shot. We're out of time already, but let's move quickly into it. All right, because now we come out of the church of Pergamos and we go into the church of Thyatira, different place. It says this in verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like unto fine brass. So Jesus is describing himself. And I want to go back to a reference that we had made uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 14 and 15, if they could get these scriptures up here. And this is in comparison to verse number 18, where we are now. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. We had already studied that. Those scriptures in verse number 14 and 15 typify the verse that we're in in verse number 18. And something very special, and I will end with this. This, When I was doing my study, this, this really was impressive to me. God has used many, many, many great men in the world to lead battles in the name of Jesus, to conquer kings and kingdoms and to become kings. And he's used, it's endless, the many great men that he has used. But when I was studying this particular passage of Scripture about the church at Thyatira, something very special about this church seemed to jump out in my personal study, and that is this. This particular church could have been, and the only church that I'm aware of in my study, and I, and I emphasize could have been, could have been organized by a woman not by a man. And the scripture that I give you for that is in Acts chapter 16, verse number 14 and 15. And we'll close here tonight with that. And this was a well-known godly woman of the word. But it says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, and of the city of Thyatira, that's where we are now in Revelation 2.18, which worship God, heard us. Whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And in verse 15, And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there, and she constrained us. Now, I, I can't prove it, but this was a very wonderful Christian lady. She was a godly lady. She opened up her home. I believe she opened up her heart, and I believe she opened up many doors for Paul, and she could have been. I'm not saying she was. She could have been 
the lightning rods, who could have been the architect, the cornerstone, if you will, that had, God had moved in such a way to be the voice, the instrument that paved the way for the church of Thyatira to be established. And uh, I will stop there for tonight. We'll pick up with this verse number 19 next Wednesday night, Lord willing. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.